Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Julia Walsh. Julia is a pioneer in mining big search data for healthcare insights. Her unique methodology for search listening empowers marketers to shift from brand-centric approach to a truly patient-centric one. Her concept of search listening optimization enables health-related content to be designed with the end in mind what patients really need to know. She's a global citizen, mother of twin boys, and passionate about our collective responsibility to protect our environment. Julia is also the publisher of the upcoming book, What We Really Ask Dr. Google, Healthcare Insights in the Digital Age, to be published shortly. Hi, Julia. Welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to have you with us here today. Thank you so much, Divya. Really, it's it's a pleasure to join you and you know, to have this opportunity to just have an informal chat where there might be things that, you know, I've experienced over my life that might help or inspire other people at different points in their lives. So it's really an honor to be invited. Thank you. Absolutely. We are so intrigued by your career, your life. You've been a global citizen, so to say, right? You've traveled Mm -hmm. quite a bit. You've worked in many different countries for many different companies. So let's start at your childhood. How was your childhood and how did this all come about? I think honestly, um, you know, my my, global approach to life started in my childhood because my father was a diplomat. And so on his first post into New Zealand, that's where he met my mother. And um, so he started collecting people and things (laughs) as he continued to travel around the world. And I was born, um, I think I was conceived in Fiji and born in New Zealand. And then, um, and then we lived in Africa, we lived in Poland, we lived in Iraq. And there were points in my childhood where I really sort of thought, and you know, I was envious of friends who grew up with the same group of friends, right, from when they were in kindergarten and had that security and had this family home that was something that was anchored and permanent in their lives. And you know, there was a part of me that kind of tinged for that. But then over time, I realized that I can create a life and a group of friends everywhere or anywhere. And also the people that I had met over time would always be with me and come with me and stay in touch and go back and visit. And now that I'm home in Australia, up until COVID, I had quite a few people from the US come and visit and come and stay. So I think that kind of set me up to realize that, you know, disruption is actually a good thing. And it's put me in a good place to actually cope with first the GFC when we were living in New York, and then now COVID. And as a parent, I kind of look at my children and, you know, We've moved a number of times as well since they were born. And you can kind of sort of feel like, oh, I want them to have stability and security. But actually the best thing for a child is to have a lot of change and to learn to adapt and cope, thrive, in fact. And so giving them that change and bringing them into new environments is actually a positive thing because it definitely was for me. And I don't hesitate to do that for my children as a parent. A lot of times... When you are traveling so much or moving around so much, you don't have a lot of stable figures, possibly your parents. So were there any other figures um, that really influenced you in shaping who you are today? Yeah, so my, my dad has one brother. And he, his name is Mike Walsh. He's kind of like the Australian David Letterman. And he had a daytime TV show. He's just a larger than life character. When I was growing up, when I came to boarding school in Australia at the age of 12, when my parents were living in Chicago, 
um, my uncle became my guardian. And, you know, he, <laughs> it's just such a different life to be hanging out with someone like that on the weekends than it is, you know, with a, with a, a normal kind of family unit. Um, he would have all different kinds of people from the show coming to stay and different characters like Dame Edna Everidge, um, the, you know, the person who is, is that character would be staying with him. Um, so my uncle kind of taught me to embrace creativity, but also just to dream big. Like I always thought, wow, if I even achieve one tenth of what he achieved in his life, I'll be happy. Um, he's a really, really big supporter of the arts and you know, offers a lot of scholarships to people graduating from different arts colleges and um, owns theatres. He often buys run-down old Art Deco theatres and just no expenses spared in um, renovating those. And that to me as well has taught me the concept of legacy because what he will leave behind is something that will be enduring for lifetimes. And, um, and so he's, he's another really big figure in my life. Being a 12-year-old, getting exposed to all these famous personalities, was that overwhelming? Um, no, because I think at the end of the day, everyone is just a normal person underneath. They, they look big and imposing when they're, you know, when you see them on TV and when you see crowds of people kind of competing for their attention. But at the end of the day, you know, they'll still sit around the table and have a bowl of breakfast with you. Um, you know, I, there was a lot of... Um, a lot of gay people in that environment. So that was actually really wonderful as well because it just taught me to see people as people. And I, you know, I still to this day, like I don't, I don't see someone's sexuality or their color really um, until they tell me that they're being discriminated against it. You know, if, if we're friends and they confide in me and I'm like, I just don't get that. Like, wow, I never even thought to discriminate against you for that. Like, it's insane. But it's obviously still a thing. But maybe that's because I did grow up in so many different places, thrown into environments where, like, I didn't speak the language. When we moved to Poland, my parents didn't speak Polish. I was sent to a French school because there was no English school. I'd never spoken French before in my life. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to kind of try and keep up in class and learn the language at the same time, which was fine across most of the classes, except for maths. It's just fully couldn't understand anything. And then, you know, with the neighbours and my friends outside of school, they spoke Polish. So I had to learn that as well. So I guess, you know, I just started to see see people for who they really are and I really you know my friendships that I enjoy the most in my life are those that are just really really authentic we talk about real stuff you know um right and and that's the kind of satisfying way of uh, you know connecting with people I think so now I'm really curious how many languages do you speak now oh you know what it's all gone I mean I can kind of speak Italian and French um, but my first language when I was growing up in, in Africa, my parents told me was Swahili. It's funny. I think somewhere in my brain, if I actually spent the time, I know that I would be able to get back on top of these things. But now, you know, now it's more like I watch a French movie or an Italian movie. Um, I can understand what they're saying, but I struggle to have the vocabulary to speak back to them. In fact, when I first went to Italy, I made my biggest obvious mistake with regards to learning a new language was that I was riding my bicycle and I was trying to find this location. I thought, oh, well, I can ask directions in Italian. So I went up to this old older gentleman and I said, you know, scusi, 
Dove, whatever it was that I was looking for. And he goes, in sinistra, in diretto, in diretto. And I was like, what? And I just was too embarrassed to actually explain to him, I don't know what you're saying. Can you explain the directions in English? But of course he couldn't. Um, so I just smiled and rode on my way, probably in the opposite direction of what he'd sent me. That is so funny. <laughs> but that's <laughs> pretty embarrassing. When I learn a language, the first thing I learn is that I don't speak this language. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that way, whatever little you speak is kind of taken as, okay, great. At least she can speak this much. And I think it's important to try as well. I was working in a, um, like a little market stall in Piazza Santa Croce and um, people would come, busloads of people would come up to the stall. And as far as they knew, I was Italian. Um, the family I worked for didn't speak a word of English. And they had me there to kind of speak to the English-speaking tourists. What surprised me was the number of people who would try and say, you know, hello in Italian. And then there would be busloads of people that just be like, hi. And I'm like, come on, you're in Italy. Have a go. <laughs> you know, you're going you're gonna to be positively judged by having a go and not negatively judged by getting it wrong, especially in, in Italy. They're so forgiving. So, and it's beautiful too. So beautiful. Yeah. So after you moved um, back, mm -hmm. what was your criteria for choosing the next steps? You know, like in high school, how did you decide what you wanted to do in your career or what subjects you wanted to study in college? Well, I'd always loved science. I have an insatiable curiosity. And so for me, it was quite natural to just start to bias my subjects towards science. Um, and then on the other hand, where I could art and English, because I love, I love language. You know, I love the power of words. And, you know, I think poetry is amazing. I mean, how much have we all relied on music and the lyrics of songs to get us through this pandemic? So I kind of biased towards those sort of subjects. So a blend, I guess, of left and right brain in a way. And that put me on the path towards actually my first job, which was at the CSIRO, which is the um, research organization here in Australia, the Commonwealth Research Organization. And then you also kind of went in, and this was a great story, by the way, how in 2005, you really wanted to move to New York City and you made it happen. So can, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I think this is, um, you know, for people who have a dream and or a goal and they think it might be impossible, I would just suggest to really focus upon it. And in a way um, for us, for my husband and I, the way that we approached that was we actually wrote a manifesto of where we wanted to be. And we frequently do this. So like five years from now, where do we want to be? What does our life look like? And so that's really helped to shape our pathway through um, different careers and transitions from country to country because it's been by choice um, for the most part, except for, of course, COVID kind of compressing stuff. But there's always going to be those things that come in and disrupt. But it's the overall trajectory that you want to kind of focus on for yourself. So for us, I'd always wanted to work in New York. I'd always wanted to work in those bigger healthcare advertising agencies and be in that environment where I felt fully challenged, but also really a close part of the client team because of the structure of the brand teams. 
over there and the account teams that work together. I think it was November and I decided, yep, I'm going to move to New York by April next year. And this is from Australia and I had a job here. Anyone that I told that I was doing that was like, as if you can't just pick yourself up and move to the United States. Don't you understand? They've got the most difficult job visa applications and you know, what have you got to offer a company over there because you've, you've only ever worked in Sydney and all of these kind of reasons why it was never going to happen. But ultimately, you know, we did make it happen. I came over to New York for Christmas holidays. And while I was there, I just went for job interviews. And there's something in just picking up the phone and just asking. And if you don't, you know, you're never going to get what you don't ask for. And so I went and, you know, wonderful job interviews. And Emily Shaw was one of the HR people within, and she was instrumental really in helping me to transition across. And in fact, she even brought my cat. (laughs) And so Nick and I moved over there in 2005. And then, you know, the rest is history, really. So what was the biggest change or difference that you noticed moving from Australia to New York? City. Oh, I just love the vibrancy of the city. I mean, it's it's so thrilling. Um, it's such a melting pot of people and the sky is the limit. You know, the scale there is really, really incredible. I think from a work point of view, I thought it would be more intimidating. But at the end of the day, the mechanics of what you have to do on an account and the way you have to think about it is the same, whether it's a small account or a big account. So the numbers actually don't really make any difference. It's just scale, but still when you get to work, you're putting one foot in front of the other. So there were less differences, I think, than there than I expected. And, and do you think your mobility in terms of, you know, having moved around so much really helped you adjust there faster? And also did it help you yeah. do your job better? Because you kind of had this perspective of how other people think across the globe. A hundred percent. Yes. I was working on global accounts. So the fact that I had been an account director running accounts at the local level meant that I really had empathy and understanding for what those people in the local market need. You know, we, we didn't need things that were not going to adapt to our culture and market. We wanted something that could be, you know, creatively would have the flexibility to kind of be able to be utilised without too much work because the local budgets are very small as well. So you needed to give them all of the templates and tools to give them a running start. But it wasn't a matter of just, oh, here's a Dropbox. We really spent quite a bit of effort in creating the instructional guides on how to use the different materials But while we were developing those, we were constantly talking with those markets to develop those materials. And I think the fact that I wasn't American really helped me to build rapport with the global brand team, as well as the local affiliates across the market. So that definitely helped. And so anybody now stepping into this field, right, wanting to make it big on the agency side, trying to think about, you know, I want to work in a big agency in New York City. What would you suggest? Where should they start? I think just find someone that inspires you, someone whose work or approach to their career inspires you. And LinkedIn is a really, really wonderful place to start. You know, contact them and just say, well, at the moment, I guess it's like a Zoom catch up, but, you know, you could, you could meet them for a drink and just ask for career advice. And once you start that process of having conversations with individuals, especially with people that you want to work with, 
you know, it, it kind of has an attractive quality where it just builds momentum over time and you will find yourself in the place that you want to be. So I think it's just about picking up the phone, really, you know, asking for those roles. And then when you get into the companies as well, and this is something I noticed when I became a managing director is that people treat you differently. It's a really weird thing. I don't know whether it's that they're constantly on guard when they're around you and they're conscious of how you might be judging them and how that might influence their career. But at the end of the day, and this comes back to what I said about my uncle's friends, we're all human. You know, even when I went to work, I'd love for someone to say, let's have, you know, let's grab a coffee together or you know, to have an informal conversation about our life outside of work as well, and just to connect on a human to human level. And so if you do that, when you go into those bigger agencies, it becomes less intimidating, because at the end of the day, all of the people there are real people as well. They've got their own concerns and their own goals and, you know, their own philosophies about work. And if you just approach them and break the ice, because when it is a big organization, it's hard to see the individuals. Just be that individual who stands out to them. And for me, I was really lucky because two of the people in very senior people at Medicus at the time had both had twins. So the managing director and the client services director had both had twins. So I was really lucky in that I was in, and you know, that was all coincidental as well. Um, But I ended up in an environment where myself having twins um, was something that was very well accepted within the organization. And that really helped. That is such a coincidence. And I'm going to come back to this, but I have another question before that. So you started your career early on working for an MD and then you become the Mm -hmm. MD eventually. How Mm -hmm. was that from where I started to where I am today? It's like, I'm on the other side of the desk. Yeah, it was funny. Um, I guess, you know, when I started I got the job at Gray Healthcare after I left the science lab and I was the managing director's, um, you know, assistant. And so what I really learned from that was just doing the filing made me understand the pieces that went into campaigns because we had a whole room where we just had filed paper stuff which we don't really do anymore. Then reading her correspondence as well taught me a lot about the kind of conversations that were being had in the business And so, you know, that gave me my stepping stone and my insights into that role. You know, when I moved to New York City, I wanted to make that change pay in a way. I wanted to make it worth it. And for me, coming back to Australia in a managing director role was what made the most sense. While I, you know, I loved certain aspects of that role, the thing that came through to me is that being in a role like that is a very, very different job to what you were doing day to day leading up until you got that job. So you are, like you said, you're on the other side of the desk, but suddenly the responsibilities on the other side of that desk are around human resources and business planning, but really with a massive focus on the numbers, you know, renovations, all of those kind of things, managing up the politics within the organization. And so I was taken away from the day-to-day of strategic planning and guidance for clients. So I actually prefer, I think, the latter because that's what my training is in and that's where my curiosity is really satisfied and that's where I get my job satisfaction of designing a communications plan that connects patients with the products that they need and makes clients famous within their organisation for doing a really great job. And, you know, being the managing director 
kind of took me away from that. So, yeah, it's funny how, in a way, careful what you wish for because it didn't turn out to be all it was kind of um, cut out to be when I when I thought about the role. Now let's come back to the twins. Yeah. So that was yeah. quite an exciting time for you. You moved to a new country. You were working in your dream job. Then you have twins. So how mm-hmm. was that experience and how, how was that whole, how did you manage the work-life balance with twins? With one kid, it's hard. Now with twins... Yeah in a new country where you don't have a lot of family support system Mm. how did that work out yeah so I was so focused on my career and I'm a very conscientious worker and I really was concerned about how becoming a mother was going to impact my work and you know you hear throwaway comments throughout time that sit with you colleagues sort of say oh that client you know she's blocked from 5 p.m every day because that's when she's going home to her family and they would say it in a bad way and so I always was conscious that once I become a mother that I was going to be judged for being a mother and I was really worried to do everything I could to make it like not seem so you know which is really really sad in a way like that just says so much and I think you know, if we all as women embrace our roles as mothers as much as we embrace our roles as career women, we can we can shift the needle and we can shift the perception. And it should be seen as a positive thing that someone is going at five o'clock to be with their children because no doubt by nine o'clock she's probably back on the email or reading the clinical papers or writing a brief anyway. And so when I got pregnant, coincidentally planned a trip back to Australia. And so I came back to Australia for like three weeks and it was during that time that my stomach just popped. And I guess, I think I did know by then that it was twins. Anyway, so when I went back to New York City, it had just started to get cold. And so I was wearing a giant jacket. I didn't want my boss to know that I was pregnant. So so I like wearing this jacket inside all day. You know, I was kind of like, oh, at some point I'm going to have to tell him and trying to figure out who do I tell first? And I was so worried that they were going to fire me. I know that seems ridiculous, but I had seen women be discriminated against so much for being mothers that I was terrified what was going to happen. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I went into his office still in my jacket. <laughs> it's like a massive winter coat, totally inappropriate inside. And I said, oh, Adrian, um, just I need to tell you something. And he's like, what? He's worried that I was going to quit or something. And I said, I'm pregnant. And he's like, yay, that's the best news. Oh my God, I'm so happy for you. You're going to love being a parent. It changes everything. It's going to be wonderful. And was just so positive about it. I was blown away and so relieved. I'm like, can I take my jacket off now then? (laughs) And then he's like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Because, of course, with twins, it just, boom, you know, really blew out. And, and how was it after the kids were born? Was that work-life balance still possible? Just listening to you looks like you had a couple of twins within the company. So I'm sure a lot of yeah. people be compare notes with. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I felt like I went into a vortex of busyness where my life really only focused around my work and the children, and that was it. There wasn't anything really outside of that. And that was fine. I mean, it was totally fulfilling. But like you say, I didn't have that network of family and friends 
that were close by that I could kind of lean on on a day-to-day basis. I did have my mum's twin sister out in Connecticut though, and she was a lifesaver um, and I loved spending time with them. From a work-life balance, the best piece of advice that I got was from some friends of ours that we met when we first moved to New York City. And they had had twins about six months before we did. Kim actually is married. She's a music lawyer and married to Rob, who's a musician. And so they keep musicians hours. They're sitting up really late every night. And if you want to have brunch with them on a Sunday, that'll be 1 p.m. Anyway, so they had their twins on musician hours for sleeping. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like I thought babies go to bed really early and they wake up really early. And I thought, oh, because when I was getting home from work, just on six o'clock, I think it was, because that's when the, the nanny needed to leave. And, you know, if the kids were going to go down to bed like a normal baby, that's like 6.37 p.m. You've barely walked in the door and taken off your shoes and washed off your makeup and the kids are asleep, which might seem nice if you just want to relax for the evening. But I wanted to be there with my children as they grew and spend time with them. And then the other side of that was if they were getting up at 6.30 in the morning, you're having to get up really early and you're doing all of the breakfast and everything like that and you're also trying to get ready for work and not look like a mother covered in sick you know um and so I thought well what Rob and Kim have got going on seems like a pretty good deal so I shifted the boys to musicians hours and put them to sleep at about 10 p.m and then they would wake up at eight as I was walking out the door and I could say good morning to them and then the babysitter would take over and look after them for the day and that was like one of the best things that got me through those early years with them um, and gave me the opportunity to spend quality time with them as well. That's a great concept. I'm I'm sure nobody thinks of it that way, but that is so helpful and useful. It was. It was so good. And I would get home and we'd sit on the ground in in the flat and make cookies and play and you know it was really really good read stories all of that kind of thing and there wasn't a rush to get them into bed as soon as I came in the door it really was game-changing as a parent no thanks for sharing that by the way (laughs) I'm sure our listeners will really really appreciate that yeah let's let's talk about mentors did Mm -hmm. you have any mentors and did you participate in mentorship programs formal or is that more informal yeah I think in a way again you know what I mentioned earlier about finding the people that you want to work with pursuing those opportunities to work with them you know while while the window is open and I think mentorship comes from around you really as opposed to necessarily single individuals so for example when I was working as a research scientist and um, my boyfriend at the time was living in Italy and I had an opportunity to go and spend six Six months with him in Florence and then um, I was also finishing up my contract my research contract and the next contract was about to be renewed and I was speaking to my bosses about it and of course I wanted to take the next contract because that was the right thing to do for my work and they actually said to me we're not going to give it to you because we feel like this opportunity is too good to pass up. You must go to Italy. That's the kind of mentorship that balances life with work that I think is really valuable as well. Um, They saw me as a young person throwing away a young person's opportunity to 
experience a life-changing journey and they wouldn't let me do that. They're like, you must go. And I think that was a really cool thing that they did for me. Otherwise, I would have absolutely stayed and just, you know, messaged him at nighttime on the old-fashioned computers that we had. And then over time, there was a guy, Peter Thackeray, who'd started Hammond and Thackeray, which was a company. And I always thought he was a lovely person and I really wanted to work with him in his company. Um, and so I, I applied to move to there and um, I got a job there and stayed there for about five years, which was great. And I saw that he was about to retire and I wanted to make sure that I got that time being in his team before he did. So he was wonderful. And actually, when I came back to Sydney and was in the role as managing director of Sudler here, Peter became someone that I would call and, you know, bounce things off of and say, this is happening. Is this normal? (laughs) People are trying to get away with this. Is that normal? You know, how? give me guidance on how to respond to that as an MD. Because I think the other thing that it's hard to see yourself from outside of yourself. And when you are in a senior role, you don't need to say very much for people to feel very bad. You know, your words carry more weight. And so it was nice to kind of have someone who's kind and compassionate, but also a really seasoned leader in the advertising, healthcare advertising space that I could say, got any advice on how to handle this without breaking the relationship with these employees, but also keeping the ship tight. And there was another mentor as well, who was also another MD who was a similar style, Ashley Cushell. And he actually went and worked, I believe, in London, and then also is back in Australia now as well. So just learning from those kind of people. And I think creatives as well when you're in the agency world having mentors who are on the creative side of the business are really important because they help you to understand how to get the best out of that creative team and help to ease the you know ease the divide between the account responsibilities and the creative responsibilities so that everything's really functional so those those are the kind of mentoring relationships that I would look to sort of nourish nurture and you had made an excellent point last time you had said you know not all mentors come in the form of angels. There's always something to learn from everybody. Some teach you what to do. Some teach you what not to do. And I thought that was so powerful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there are some people that you will cross paths with in your career that really, really challenge you and almost break you. Um, Whether it's the, you know, the way that they put extraordinary pressure on you to achieve goals beyond what you think you're capable of or extraordinarily critical or extraordinarily unpredictable these people also really help you to grow and I think you know looking for positive mentors only and expecting the growth to come out of those relationships which are safe and nurturing is missing a really big opportunity to see the benefits of those conflicting relationships as well the people that you actually just detest when you go to the office or you're kind of like in you know in fear of having to work with them but actually upon reflection I've realized over time that those are the people that really helped me to overcome adversity or to achieve things that I never thought was possible And even recently, I was working on something that just ended up being bigger than Ben-Hur. And I was like, oh, my God, I just so want to quit before I get to the end of this. I'm exhausted. But those experiences 
staying and making it perfect and crafting every single word and not giving up until it was two in the morning, those experiences I can actually draw upon them now and go and push through and know that I'll be really happy with the final result and I'll be really proud of it and it's going to do what it needs to do when it's released. So those difficult mentoring situations were what I actually drew upon, you know, for recent events. Were there instances throughout your career where you had to face challenges because you were a woman? And how did you overcome those challenges? For me, I think one of the resounding sort of quotes that goes through my mind as a woman is that if it feels wrong it is wrong and I think we've all had experiences where we're like that didn't that just didn't feel right you know and do we speak up at that time or do we just let it go and for me I think as I've gotten older and stronger and I care less about what people think now and I'm I'm my own person in my work is that I feel a responsibility to speak up about those things because if they're doing it to me they're going to be doing it to other people. And for me, through my career, I've been really lucky. I haven't, you know, really had any instances of being sexually harassed or anything like that. But it's the bullying that men in power think that they can get away with, with women. That is extraordinary. Like it truly is. It is very, very hard to stand up against that. And there's been one time where I did stand up against it and I, I organized a meeting with this person because they were going to break me, but I couldn't leave because of my visa situation. I couldn't just quit the job. So I was forced to confront the challenge. If I had left, I had 10 days to leave the country as well as my husband and children. So I had to make this work because it was unbearable. And so I made a time to meet with that person. You know, I prepared myself, I dressed professionally, I rehearsed the conversation with my husband over and over again. And so that when I got in there, the words came easily. I was able to actually speak up for myself and tell them it's unacceptable what you're doing. I'm actually capable at my job. I need to be respected for this. I cannot function in this environment. And it was just like everything changed from that moment. And I was like, oh, the big scary bear is now my friend. Like, who knew? Um, and I had a similar experience with a very difficult client one day too. I mean, for a year or more, he was just impossible. Everything that I took to him, he'd shred it up into pieces and be very, very difficult. And then finally, I had a really long lunch with him and, you know, we kind of chatted about everything. And he goes, oh, I just like to throw the shit to the fan and to see where it sticks. And I'm like, all right, so it's a game for you. You know, you've been tormenting me. So often, you know, when people are bullying you in the workplace, it's not about you. It's about them. And you need to stand up to them so that they stop doing it to you and also call it out so that they become afraid that the next person might call it out too and maybe a little less inclined to behave in that way. And you had said a really powerful quote, which I'm going to quote right now. It said, people who matter don't mind and people who mind don't matter. And I think that's when you're working in a diverse organization, there's going to be people that you're never going to get on the right side of them. 
And trying to please everyone is the fastest way to please nobody. Like what I learned through those particular experiences was that I owned that, you know, attack for so long, thinking that it was something that I was doing. And what I realized through kind of lancing the boil in both of those situations was that for one of them, it was a game. And for the other one, they didn't realize the power of the way that they were engaging in that colleague to colleague relationship. And so just calling it out, you know, really been helpful, but also reflecting back on it. Like if I had cared less about what they had thought, it would have affected me less as well. And so that's why I kind of like that quote. So one thing you do care a lot about is the climate. You've been an activist for a very long time. So Mm. let's talk a little bit about that. So how did that come about? And now I know everybody wants to be on that boat, on that ship. When you started, you were kind of a loner there. In a way. And, you know, I think it's because my background as a scientist made me look at the data of what was happening and our influence on it and the world, while it's enormous, is still a closed system. The population explosion and our approach to burning fossil fuels for energy has only got one direction to go in a closed system. And I love the way that David Attenborough kind of speaks of this and he goes, you know, it's it's really only economists who would say that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet. And over our lifetimes, and this is why I got actively involved, and it's something that I haven't actually brought through to my professional network yet really at all, because there's actually been a very um, big divide between environmentalism and business, because business has been allowed to thrive and grow at a scale without any social or environmental license for so long and that's how we got to where we are and so you know looking for that infinite growth on a finite planet has brought us to this point now and I'm really really pleased to see the movement taking off now and the awareness I worry that it's too late because looking at the wildfires in Turkey and the wildfires we had in Australia it was extraordinary like I'm still like affected by it. It was months of everything burning up and down the coast, you know, and just to see that destruction totally out of control and huge, like just on a scale that is almost impossible for a mere human to understand. And then the floods as well that we've started to see around the world from these rain bomb events. And then what we're doing in the ocean with the plastic, you know, it's just, it's all got to stop. We've, you know, and that's what we were talking about just before we started recording today. I read this book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which just really highlighted the gross waste of our consumerism. We in Australia have this thing called council pickup and we throw furniture away on the street and the trucks come and they just crash it all up and they put it into landfill. So I've actually furnished pretty much my whole house off the street because I'm like, you know, I've got this one life. I don't need brand new things. I can I can pick up these things and I can restore them. I can have them recovered or I can sand them back and stain them and nail them back together. And they're beautiful. No one would ever know. But at least it's one or two or ten less things into landfill. And when you look at Greta Thunberg and what she's managed to do, if you ever think that you're too small to make a difference, 
in this space, reflect on what it's like to try and sleep with one mosquito in the bedroom and you can be the mosquito. And I think collectively, if we think globally and act locally, we can actually really, really make a change. For us locally, I'm the chair of the local environment committee, Save Manly Dam Catchment, and we've got this beautiful nature reserve around us. And there's wallabies, which are like a kangaroo, (laughs) Um, powerful owls, these incredible lizards, all living right in our backyards. And um, recently we had a fight that we won, but it took us years because there's some loopholes in the legislation that allow aged care and hospitals to build into bushland because we need aged care and we need hospitals. So they are actually used as a thin edge of the wedge to open up lands that meant to be preserved for wildlife, to break down wildlife corridors, which are a really important thing for animals to move up and down through their habitat. And so we had this fight with this aged care facility that wanted to build these things. And it sounds bad that we're fighting with them, but I mean, these are million dollar apartments that they're going to build in there. And then if there's a bushfire, how are you going to get all the older people out of there? It's like the dumbest place to put it. But we did actually just win that recently and they withdrew from the land and environment court that they you know, escalated it up to over the years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, no, that, that's quite an achievement. Congratulations. Yeah, so it's a little thing, but I think if everyone starts to be more aware of it and looks locally what they can do, we can all actually make a change. And, you know, it's, it's like a hobby for me. If you've got your spare time, spend it on something that really matters yeah no absolutely and we have to have passions you know we have to be passionate about other things somebody had told me you know if you don't stand for something you'll take everything lying down so you have to have your beliefs you You stand for what you believe in and help others see the reason behind why you want to do it excellent result by the way (laughs) but your house sounds just wonderful just listening to you (laughs) where you live I'm like I want to be there (laughs) <laughs> it is it is beautiful oh my god we're so lucky to be living here during this time I'm grateful every day that you know I've got trees and space and sunshine and we could have been in a different place um, and we just happened to be here when this all broke out so we're very very grateful and lucky so in closing any final comments for our listeners thank you Divya for this opportunity I mean if people have a question or sort of grappling with a challenge, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm happy to have a chat with you, talk through it. You know, I'm here as a mentor for people as well. And that was something actually when I finished university, I thought, oh, I want to be a teacher. But I didn't want to just go straight from university into teaching. I felt like I needed to, needed to be a bit weathered. I needed some life experience so that I could bring that wisdom back into the classroom and I've realized now that I'm not teaching children but I've realized I have an ability to help other people at different points in their career and the final thing that I would say is just be curious and always be learning because that is how we grow the world is constantly changing and so what we knew five years ago or even one year ago needs to be refreshed and updated and that's the best way I think you can invest in yourself and invest in your capabilities and career because what you learn, no one can take away from you. And you can always bring that in a unique way to create opportunities for yourself in the future. Thank you so much, Julia. This was so much fun and such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Divya. Take care.